Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes, podcast blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. Today, folks, we are rewinding back to episode 711. The original episode was called Lessons from the Man Who Stopped the Desert, and it was originally first published on July 27, 2011. Got it. Couple bits of information to give you here on the new intro for this episode.、Uh, start out with why is there a rewind today? Well, it is Martin Luther King Day.、Uh, traditionally, I did not take this day off from podcasting. I would generally do a show on this day,、um, but、uh, as many of you know, in the years since this episode has come out, I have gone from being just a father to a grandfather, and I now have two wonderful grandchildren. One is eight, and one is two,、uh, heading for three real fast.、Uh, the other one just became eight, so it's exciting, and we love having them here. But they're here. Every day, every single day, they're here,、uh, and the, the youngest one, of course, is here with my my wife all day long. So we are kind of going through,、uh, on some levels, like a parenting 2.0. Oh, and while we love having them around, it takes away from the time we've become accustomed as we raised our son to adulthood, or even into the teens where he was self-sufficient, to where we can just go do things. So a lesson to you guys, because I always talk about lifestyle design as part as mo- part of modern survivalism. When my wife said, "But we won't have the kids Monday, and we are free to do stuff together," I said, "Well, then that's what we're going to do." So I decided to spin up a rewind for you today, so I can spend my day with my wife. We're going to go have some good food, and、uh, to, actually, we're going to stock up on some、uh, some food for the pantry, and、uh, just have a good day together, child free, because. Generally, a weekday involves me working all day and her taking care of the kids all day, so we don't have to do that today. So that's why you're getting a rewind today. Next up,、um, why the subject? What made me go back to this one? So recently, I was on the Regenerative Ag Group on Facebook, which is probably at this point the best、uh, group for discussing growing food and getting stuff done. That there is on Facebook. It is all action oriented. No politics. No fighting. When people try to start a fight, we just ban them,、uh, so it stays clean and the, it's the politic free zone. And、uh, but I was on there and somebody was somebody mentioned Yakuba Sawagadogo, and I went, oh wow, I forgot that I did an episode about this, and I, I put a link to this episode there, and I was like. I really need the next time I do a rewind to to bring this episode back around, and then my wife told me what I just told you, and I'm like, okay, boom, we're gonna do this, right? So this guy is to me one of the icons of sustainable and regenerative agriculture in in society today, and actually making a difference and actually feeding people. And the story you're about to hear is. On some levels, inspirational. On some other、uh, other levels, this got awful. The way that humans treat each other because they dare break the mold of what is expected. Tribalism and traditionalism don't just affect modern politics; they also, you know, affect Burkina Faso halfway around the world in the middle of a desert. But there is so much here, and I, I still think that this is like one of those techniques that I never really had a property that this technique made sense for that I really think still needs to be tried. Um, 
in, in different environments other than just this desert that I think there is an incredible opportunity. Um, you'll hear some stuff in today's show where I'm like, boy, it would have been great if they would have like said, well, how deep are these holes? How big are these holes, etc." And um, my understanding since then is that these zys that I'll talk about today, which are holes in the ground, are around uh, half a meter deep and about a meter in diameter and placed about a meter to two meters apart from each other. So when you hear that, and I'm not sure that's right. I still say the people behind 1080 Films that brought out this, this film back in 2011 would do well to show a diagram. What, is, what, is, what does Mr. Sawadogo say is the proper way to do a zy? And then if people want to modify that, go bigger, smaller, etc., change distances, change patterns, etc., that's fine. But then they know that what they're working off of, of a proven thing that worked, and they have a control to look back to. I did look up um, the 1080 Films Facebook page. It's not super active with followers, but uh, Yakuba is traveling around the world at this point. Uh, it kind of reminds me his travels are a lot like Masanuba Fukuoka's. Uh, where he's going all of these places, but yet most of the people that most would like to know about it don't. So maybe this can be a resurgence of people following this guy and paying attention to what he's doing. Um, being what he's, the world he's in, and the places he's trying to make the biggest effect on, he's not coming to places like America where we have no trouble feeding ourselves. He's going to other countries where people starve while land lays fallow, which... That's mission-oriented, and I get it, but I, I do think there is some level for potential for this technique to be somehow utilized um, within you know, more developed areas. If it, if it works in a, in a desert, well, it might work in some places not quite that bad, and it might actually have a lot of potential for uh, reforesting the deserts in America. Uh, while he's using it to grow mostly annuals like sorghum and millet, uh, what makes things grow makes things grow. That's just a fact. And I think one of the, the things that I have, I have so tried to explain to people over the years and probably have failed the most at getting across to people, a lot of the area in the United States that we think of desert today used to be forested. Now, when I say that, I don't mean California redwoods. I don't mean eastern hardwoods. I don't mean, you know, let's say like the Colorado spruce forest. It was a different kind of forest. It wasn't giant 200-foot trees with massive leaf litter and deer running around. It was a scrub desert type of forest, and it was incredibly fertile. And those areas, through transpiration, contributed to some additional rainfall that they don't get today, and the rainfall they do get today, when they got it back then, more of the water infiltrated and actually allowed these desert species with incredibly deep root systems to survive. And our actions have degraded those deserts because we went into those deserts and figured out how to do agriculture in them and basically strip mine them of everything that they needed to sustain their ecosystems. And when they no longer sustained us, and we figured out ways to do agriculture in other places that were easier, we just left, like locusts. So I think this technique has just an abundance of abilities to regenerate healthy ecosystems. I also think that the lesson here really is more a socioeconomic lesson. 
in that if you can create autonomy for a group of people, a society, where they can feed themselves, at least primarily from their own resources, that you do a lot for liberty and freedom. Because that group of people are less susceptible to manipulation. And I don't think it matters if that group of people are a, a, a group of peasants that live in some you know, largely undiscovered part of the world or a group of urbanites that spend a lot of time on their iPhones. I think that when people truly understand, no matter how it's done, we sustain ourselves here. It's not that we don't care about everybody else. It's not that we're in a bubble sealing everybody else off. But we'd like to run our own affairs. Right here in this little area where we all choose to be, since we can take care of ourselves, y'all can kindly sought off elsewhere, and we will take care of our thing here, and you go do your thing there. We'll even help you do what we've done, but don't tell us how to live our lives because we don't need you. And I think it's important. I think when people start hearing terms like, we don't need you, they see it as very selfish. And actually, it is when you don't need others that you can become actually selfless. The state, in, in, in all eternity, has sought to make people codependent on each other and collectively dependent upon the state. Such people are easy to control and easy to rule. And they'll give up rights and they'll give up liberties and they'll give up freedoms and there's nothing that will make them do that more than fearing where their next meal will come from except fearing where their child's next meal will come from. That's the only thing that will put more fear in the heart of a human is not that they won't eat, but that their child will starve. And it is an incredible mechanism of control. And you're going to hear a story today about the conflict that occurs when someone tries to change that. And I find it incredibly inspirational. It makes me wonder, what could we be doing at relatively small scales in America to create more, and I don't care if it involves a zai, which is the, the technique for farming you're about to hear about. I don't care how it's done. I don't, I don't care how it's done. But if we can start to create self-sufficient economies, revitalizing small communities, instead of the concept that you hear conservatives talk about, which is, to be fair, I think it is a better viewpoint than, than, than Democrats, which are actually the nationalists, because they want the Fed, think about it, they want the federal government to control everything. Right? So they want national control. Right? So in some ways, they are the, na the true nationalists. They just want to expand that to globalism, where we also like care what France says about how we run America. Um, but if you can get those little autonomous things going, instead of having this concept of 50 laboratories of liberty, laboratories of liberty, what if you had 500 laboratories of liberty? What if you had 5,000 laboratories of liberty? What if you had... 50,000 laboratories of liberty. I think creating autonomy for individual groups and regions in food and economics, etc., is how you do that. What this guy really was doing and continues to do is creating that autonomy, at least in the ability to provide basic sustenance of food in a part of the world where starvation is a daily reality. One more thing before I go back into uh, night, uh, July 27, 2011 with you here. I'm going to do something I don't usually do with rewinds. I'm going to play the entire episode except the commercial part. So I'm taking out the MSB stuff and the sponsors part. 
But what I mean by that is I'm going to play even the old intro music and exit music. I'm going to play everything. And the reason I'm going to do that is, one, I think the intro to this one was solid. But, two, I thought it would be fun today to hear me say, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line in Hot Springs, Arkansas. I think I just thought that would be fun for old-timers to remember that move in our return to Texas. Anyway, hope you enjoy the episode. Love to hear your comments on the show notes today. Episode 96 of TSP Rewind. Lessons from the man who stopped the desert. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. You don't have to live away. Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. This is always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is July 27th, 2011. It's a Wednesday, and we are doing episode 711, 711 uh, today. I think that's kind of a cool number because uh, sometimes I stop by 711 and get a cup of coffee. Anyway, what are we going to talk about today? Um, we're going to talk about... Lessons from the Man Who Stopped the Desert. That's the name of today's show. Uh, the gentleman I'm speaking of is named Yakuba Sawadogo, and he is the son of a peasant farmer and never really learned to read or write, but he is now along, among my list of the most brilliant people in the world because of the difference that he made. I was turned on to this guy by a listener who saw a trailer for his show on YouTube. I did watch the trailer and thought it might be interesting. I watched it last night, and... Uh, Frankly, I was blown away, and the only weakness in the uh, in the documentary was they didn't really describe exactly how he did what he did uh, to a great deal. And I think I figured out it's because it's so simple they kind of did it, and I just didn't get it. But I wanted specifics, so I the show. You know, you if you know if you listen to the show as soon as it comes out, you know it came out a bit late today. And uh, since I get started recording till almost ten this morning, even though I've been at my office for several hours, I've done as much research as I can on the mechanics of how this works for you. This this method of farming he's using uh, called using a zai, z a i. I'm going to get into that real deep with you today. I'm going to tell you the more important things I learned by watching this documentary uh, about survival and about how we're all very similar throughout the world and what we need and what we're concerned about. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. You know, as I bring this to you guys today and talk to you about what this man has done in uh, the uh, Sahal of Africa... Um, I, I want to kind of start out with something that kind of sets the stage for how I view this person at, the, at this point after witnessing what he's done. There are certain names. When I talk about uh, permaculture and, and, and agriculture and, and transforming societies that, to me, are like the people that you look at as icons. And, and these would be people like Bill Mollison, who has done work all around the world and, of course, is one of the co-founders of the permaculture movement itself. And, and they're really the guy that came up with the concept. And, of course, David Holgram, who worked with him to, to take the concept and put it into print. Uh, Jeff Lawton, who became, I would say, Bill Mollison's, you know, number one student and has traveled the world and did the project Greening the Desert. They went into, uh, you know, this little 
pit of, of hell just near the Dead Sea and, and turned a desert into greenery. Uh, people like Sepp Holzer, who have his, you know, transformed a, a, an alpine mountain into something that's so amazing that it'll actually, you know, grow lemons in the Austrian Alps. Um, people that have actually transformed society, not just came up with really great ideas and proved they work, but did it in such a way and on such a level that other people looked at it and went, we have to do this too. And that in their actions and in the results of their actions, people who otherwise would have, would have starved have been fed. Um, this guy may have done more of that than the other three that I just mentioned. And I don't know that his impact globally is as big, and I don't know that it will be as big, and I don't know that the long term will be, but when it comes to the people that have been fed so far from one person's actions, it might be this person who's fed more human beings than anybody else on the planet. Um, he lives in a place called, again, the Sahal region of Africa in the nation of Burkina Faso. It's a little strip of land. If you find the Sahara Desert and you go to the southern reaches of the Sahara and then you keep going down into tropical Africa, there's this little strip in the middle that's not quite sure what it is. It's like somewhat arid forest and somewhat desert. Uh, at least that's what it was, and over time, due to bad agricultural practices and, and just destroying the land overall with modern techniques, uh, it's pretty much turned into an additional extension of the Sahara Desert. It, it became synonymous with famine in, in the 70s, in the 80s, as they had some droughts there. Uh, droughts that were, you know, not just weather patterns on some levels, they were also because of the fact the place has been deforested. And if you take away trees, you cut rainfall in, in a region. That's just the way that it works. And in this place, this man grew up. He grew up as a very poor young boy. He was sent off to a neighboring nation. I don't remember what nation that is, but to go to uh, Quranic school, which was basically learn the Quran work the fields, and beg for food. That's what he did for most of his childhood. And even though he was you know, reading these tablets of the Quran every day and trying to learn his verses, he really, I guess, had maybe what we would call, they don't say this, but what I get the, the, the message is he had a learning disability. He couldn't learn it. And he was there from the time he was a little kid till he was you know, a, a, an adult. And he never really learned what he was supposed to learn. But, you know, I guess he, he did what he could, and he came up through the, the ranks when he went there. He was the youngest, smallest kid there, and uh, so he got the least amount to eat, and he got picked on and pushed around, and I'm sure that, you know, they don't say that you don't want to ever paint the hero as pushing around, but I'm sure as he got older, he probably did a little pushing of his own, and he dealt with a very rough, tough childhood. And eventually he goes back home and uh, is an adult, and is. Parents are glad to see him, but they're not real happy about how little he learned um, in, in Quranic school, being gone for the majority of his childhood. He was home once between the time he first went there and the time that he eventually came back. And I, I think it was about seven years of age he went there, and about 18 when he returned, so over 10 years, and he really didn't learn anything. It almost seems like he still feels bad about that today, which... Uh, which I, I don't really understand why with what he's done and what I'm about to tell you that he's done. But um, he decided, well, i got to do something. So there was a market near the town, and he set up a, a, a store, and he was selling stuff. And uh, he was doing really well. He was kind of for, for the area. I mean, you and I might have looked at him and thought, man, he doesn't have a lot. But, you know, he said every six months he could buy a new motorbike. And he had lots of money and lots of stuff. And he was a successful business person. And he experienced success for the first time in his life. 
He did this for a while, and he realized something, that if your success was based on money, it was unsustainable. Those are his own words. And that he had to find another way to do things. And he also saw people starting to leave. People were just leaving the town, leaving the nation. Anybody with any wealth was picking up whatever they had and running away. More on that toward the end when I talk about some of the wisdom I've gleaned from this gentleman. So he decided he was going to kind of quit. And even though he owned his own business, it was kind of like what we would look at in this, this nation as quitting a job. Right? You've got this great business going. People show up and buy your stuff every day. You're successful. And when he left, his friends thought he was crazy. His parents thought he was crazy. All the village chiefs thought he was crazy. And he went out into the, the, the bush, the, you know, the wilderness that was left, which was basically desert. And he was shocked at how much had disappeared even in his short life at that point. And he began to learn how to fix it, how to rebuild it, how to change things. And what I want to kind of talk about right now before I go on further is my my view of that and how he's similar to Bill Mollison. Bill Mollison, again, permaculture's founder, if you're not familiar with him, uh, worked in the logging industry. And he cut down trees for a living for a you know, fairly large part of his uh his youth, and one day he said he sat around and asked all the people that were there with him killing all these trees, just clear-cutting the hell out of everything. This is during the, the construction booms of the 50s, right? Uh, when there were not just booms here in America, there were booms everywhere. There was such a demand for timber. And he said, do, do, does anybody here own a house? And everybody around him said, no, none of us own a house. And does anybody here ever think they're going to own a house? And basically none of the lumberjacks ever felt they would ever own enough money with what they were doing and how they lived their lives and uh, to ever have enough wealth to buy a house. And he said he, saw it and he thought, you know, if we're just going to keep tearing down these trees to build houses, but yet none of the people doing the work can ever even own a house, something's wrong. He kind of snapped a gasket and he went out and lived in the forest for five years. And I think it's longer than, than Yukuba did before Yukuba started doing stuff. But both of them had kind of that, you know, 40-day-in-the-desert experience type of thing where they went out and they looked at nature and they observed and interacted, one of permaculture's principles, and then they began to practice the principles that were already prevalent in nature. Um, and he came up with this technique called Zai farming. And actually, it's an ancient technique that was already being practiced there, but he changed the way that it was being practiced. And, and I'll explain to you as much as I can about exactly how the mechanics work but the bigger things that I learned in here was how many things that we think of as being unique to a more uh, advanced society such as ours. Because this is pretty basic stuff. These guys, I didn't see a light bulb uh, in the entire documentary except when Yukuba eventually comes to America. Uh, the entire time they were going through his village, I didn't see a single light bulb. I saw one or two vehicles, and they were pretty much to bring scientists in that were coming to learn from him. Everybody was using mopeds. There was no paved roads uh, and the, the farms that they're growing things on look like desert, even though they're very, very fertile. So I want you to understand this is living in the dirt. Uh, very few people even have concrete structures. Uh, this is a very primitive society, and we would think that many of our problems here are unique to us and not to societies like that. The things would be different there. Well, one I learned is that, and I kind of knew this, but this reinforced it heavily, that there will always be resistance to new ideas. See, this Zai uh, technique uh, of digging holes, basically, was something that these people were doing. But they did it in the wet season, not the dry season, because, well, it's easier to do then. The ground's soft because it rained. 
Um, but I guess Yakuba looked at it and figured out that, you know, if you did it in advance, it would be there to catch all the rain instead of just get half of the rain as you finished up. Uh, so his idea was, this is how, how much resistance there was to this. The, the village chieftains and land chiefs and all would decide who and when and what and where got to practice design. You know, doing it actually was considered a practice. And the very fact that he was digging a freaking hole at a, before a certain month created massive resistance. Nobody would talk to him. People considered him absolutely a loon because he was out in the middle of a desert digging holes and he was doing it while most of the people with any kind of wealth or success were leaving. You know, they actually show him digging a hole while people are walking away at some point in the reenactment. And people just looking back at him like, what a nut job. But the only thing he was doing was doing the exact same thing everybody else did at a different time. And then he started doing more and deeper holes. Pretty much what the whole big difference was, at least at first. And, I mean, the guy was completely ostracized in his community for this. And I want you to think about that here. I mean, we have that in America today. You bring up a truly new, genuine new idea, and there's massive resistance to it. Even if it doesn't affect anybody directly, and even if there's, you know, either nothing's going to happen, because that's what this guy's doing. He's trying to grow more food. So either you're not going to get any more food, or you're going to get more food. You ain't going to make it no worse. So there's no logical reason for resistance to new ideas, yet it's there. And we all deal with that throughout the world. And that means that the people that bring new ideas out have to have very thick skins, be very tough, be very determined, and absolutely believe in what they're doing. The next thing is, when you do that, when you're successful with it, and I've, I've even seen this to far lesser degree than, than Yakuba has uh, over, over in uh, Burkina Faso, but you know, as I brought out the ideas of the survival podcast, I didn't do things exactly the way that the classic survivalist would. And there's been some resistance and anger over that. And I get literal hate mail. Well, what this guy got was so much worse, and he was doing, to me, so much more for the good of his community. After a while, this stuff started to take off. And he had three acres of fields uh, planted with crops, you know, halfway through the season uh, and, and uh, while other crops around him were failing. And he had several acres of forest well started. And... He wanted to be more than just the guy doing it. He wanted to get this into his community, get other people doing it. He was being the example, but he also went to his local government office to tell them what he was doing and ask them to come look at it. Well, when he did this, he got on his little bike and he rides away and it often, you know, you know, miles into the distance, so he's not there to watch his fields. Guess what his neighbors, who he was working so hard to feed, did? Can you, if you haven't seen it yet, can you guess what they did? They went to his fields and to his forest and they burned them to the ground. They set them aflame. Can you imagine this? People are starving, leaving their country, leaving their community because of starvation. A man is out there doing most of the work himself, very few people willing to help him yet has success in growing food, and instead of saying, uh, dude, uh, come on, man, help us out and help us do it too, they wait for the first opportunity and they destroy what he's built in a place where failure often means death. Well, you know what? Fortunately for us, he came back harder, stronger than ever and did more, and, and fortunately for his people, and eventually people around him started to practice what he's doing, and now it's spreading throughout communities all throughout the Sahal. So he did eventually have success. But 
he faces this huge trial toward the end, and we're not really sure how it's going to work out for him yet. And it's something we've become very familiar with in America. Let me say two words to you and, and, and see if you ever really thought about them happening in Burkina Faso, Africa, out in the middle of a desert. And I mean, literally, well, at least it was a desert, and they want to basically turn it back into a desert with these two words. Imminent domain. Imminent domain. That sounds like a very modern world problem, doesn't it? It sounds like a problem we deal with when people want to build highway infrastructure and things like that. Well, see, due to all these agricultural failures, and you just have to see, it's just, also, I guess, it shows the universal, universality of the incompetence of government. Uh, not only is our government incompetent, so are all others when it comes to actually trying to st structure people's lives and their social existence and, and interfere with things like private property rights. So he has this, like, it's like a 30-acre forest now, and there is nothing in the entire Sahal that looks like this. There's nothing with the biodiversity. There's, like, hundreds and hundreds of species of plants and animals growing, all this stuff going on. And it looks very desertish, but yet it's very lush. And when you see it from a distance, it, it, it doesn't have this big swath of green like an oasis. It, you know, but then when they, you see people walking through it, it's shaded, and it's got all this stuff going on. Um, they, wanted to, they wanted to tear it down yeah, because they wanted to expand this town because of all the agricultural failures. The place is becoming very urbanized, so they want to build houses for people to live in. So they just, what they do when they're going to do this, they don't like, you know, we don't have, we have court battles here and, you know, town hall meetings and all. They just go out and start driving concrete stakes where certain things are going. Well, they drove a stake that shows a line that's going to put in a, a road that will cut the man's, the man's father's grave in two. He has his father buried on his land. And there, it, the, this road will put basically a house on one side of the road, a house on the other side of the road, and, and bifurcate his, his father's grave. Uh, they also put a stake on the inside of his house. He has one of the only concrete, concrete because he's successful in, in that world and considered a leader and, and, and has some wealth because of this. He has a concrete structure instead of a, uh, a straw hut. <laughs> that's, how, that's how remote this place is. Well, they went into his building where he stores his seeds and where he sleeps at night, and they put a stake, one of these concrete stakes, right in the middle of his house. So they're going to take his fields, his lands, his home, and his forest. Now, eventually... I don't know how much the Obama administration had to do with this, and if they had anything to do with it, kudos to them. Because even when an ass clown, an ass clown's an ass clown, when they do something right, you, you be on it. You know, you, you give them respect where it's due. Uh, I don't know if it had anything to do with that directly or just the overall exposure. But at this point, the the, the government of Burkina Faso is at least not going to destroy his forest, but he still has his other lands at risk, and he's waiting to see what happens. But that. That is a commonality, folks. It's, it, it, government taking private property from its citizens is not unique to the Trans-Texas Corridor in Texas, where they want to take, you know, basically a one-mile strip of land that goes from Mexico to the Oklahoma border, and most of it's private property, and they want to take it away. A one-mile wide strip to put in a four-lane highway and a railroad track. So, I mean, that's obscene, but... Having a desert, the whole place is desert, right? The only place that's not desert, that's where they want to build more urban sprawl. It's insane, but it sounds like something, doesn't it sound like something Washington would do, regardless of whether there's a D or an R after the name of whoever's president, whoever's in charge of the Senate or the, the Congress, at the, the House at a time? 
Doesn't it sound something dumbass like we would do? You know, like when we were going to put solar panels in the California desert? This is, you see the similarities here. Do you know that Schwarzenegger, to his credit, came up with a great green energy plan? Uh, they were going to use uh, a combination of public and private funds and build the largest solar farm ever created in the California desert. And Barbara Boxer, and what's that other one's name from California, two senators, stopped it because it might disturb habitat. To put a freaking solar panel in a desert, all it would have done is provide some shade. I'm sure the desert creatures could have used that. So they were going to put solar panels in the middle of the desert, and Schwarzenegger says, if I could not put solar panels in the middle of the desert, where could I put them? You know, And he's got a point there. You know, Regardless of what you think of the guy, he's got a point. So do you know where they're putting solar panels in California now? Well, there used to be that wonderful, wonderful place called San Joaquin Valley, right, where they had all this, you know, modern irrigation, and they shut the water off to save a fish, and these farms that have been there for 60 years growing almonds and, and peaches and tremendous amounts of produce, well, some of them have turned it in desert. So now they're going to put the solar panels in the desert we created uh, by turning the water off, and the desert that was really a desert in the first place will just remain untouched. It's the same kind of asininity that we deal with with government everywhere. And that's why we have to fight it where and when we can, especially when we think we can win. But the biggest commonality out of this, food is our greatest need. Uh, he says we have to solve the food problem, and he's right. And there, if we don't feed people in this world, we're going to have civil unrest. And a lot of the stuff that's going on uh, in the Middle East right now is not about so much government in of itself, It's not about how their leaders are elected. It's not about their desire to be free and democratic like the United States, because most of them really don't think about being like the United States at all. That's, that's, that's propaganda bullshit on your TV, folks. Don't listen to it. The, the goal of the average Egyptian is not to be like the average American. Not, not in put in that simple uh, text, anyway. It's because of food and food prices. And I'll give you some of, of his, his wisdom at the end that really cuts into that, but... Food's our greatest need. And when I say that, I, I kind of mean food and water together as a whole. We often split those as survival needs. In fact, the five primary survival needs, food and water, are separate. But they're really kind of one and the same. Because you don't get food without water. And you have to manage water properly if you're going to have food. And if you have enough food, you must have some water somewhere. So they really are interconnected to each other. And when it comes to agricultural practices, they're inseparable. So we have to make the most out of the water that we have to solve our problem, our biggest problem, which is food is the greatest need that people have. So before I go more into like the individual wisdom of this guy, let me talk to you a little bit about the Zai and how it works. So I'm watching the whole thing, and I'm just waiting for a freaking diagram. And the people that put this film together, they did a bang-up job. But honest to God, if you guys could have put a diagram and gave some specifications on the depth, the diameter, uh, stuff like that, I, I, I mean, it would have been so much better because if, if this guy's so concerned with sharing his knowledge, how about we get the knowledge out there? How about we tell people how to do this and see if people can pick it apart and make it work in different parts of the world in different ways? But basically what I was able to find out through about an hour of research to find different things about inside farming is and I can only find it in hectares, but I create I converted this to acres because I think in America and most of my audience is American, we think more in acres than hectares. So you dig holes. And from what I can see, you dig a hole about a foot in diameter and about a foot deep. 
And I think you can go bigger or smaller and deeper or shallower, but that's about the average one I can find in pictures of the ones that are being done by uh, Yukuba right now. And you dig, this is a very, and these guys don't have any machinery at all, so they do this with hoes. Uh, 5,000 to 10,000 holes to an acre. That's a lot of holes. Okay? Uh, but that's, that's what they do. And the thing is, during the dry season when he's doing this, instead of during the wet season when people are trying to plan at the same time and all, there's no, no shortage of labor over there. There's plenty of people and they have big families and they can all get out there and grab a hoe and start going and start doing this. Once you dig the hole, you incorporate organic matter, compost, manure, uh, anything you can pretty much get your hands on. You put some of it in the hole, and you fill back fill the hole a little bit. And then you plant. That's the basic technique. So this guy did all the things I said by digging a hole and throwing some shit in it. Okay, that's as basically, basic as I can make it. And other people were doing it, and he did it differently. And he transformed the landscape with moderate changes. And, folks, there's a permaculture principle there. I mean, in fact, the whole thing is permaculture. It really is. And every principle, designing from patterns to details and things like that, they all apply. Um, integrate rather than segregate. I mean, all of these principles apply. Uh, designing from patterns to details really comes to mind when you look at the holes. But... The big one that I see is use small and slow solutions. That's principle nine of permaculture. And that's what he did, a very small, slow solution, because while he was you know, growing sorghum and grain and things that people would directly eat, he grew a forest. And there was no immediate return on that. But that's the basic technique. Then he started to make some changes to these. And I already told you one of them is, and that is to do the prep work in the dry season, which despite all, and it was tradition, and he was defying tradition, and this led to all of the problems and people burning his stuff down and hating him and not talking to him and all this idiocy because he dared to break with tradition. But the, to the prep in the dry season, to me, if you think about this, if we wait till it starts to rain and then we go out there and start digging the holes, much of the rain doesn't get into the ground. They never say this in a documentary, but I just look at it and go, duh. But if we go out there in the dry season and we do all the prep work in the dry season so the field is totally prepped and then when the rains come we plant, it's all, it, it, we get a, a much better penetration and retention of water uh, and we give the organic matter some time to sit out there and incorporate itself into the soil. So we prep in the dry season. One of the other things that he added, and this is, this is something I think maybe we can use because I don't know how many people out there want to go out and dig 10,000 holes in an acre and, and, and throw stuff in it. But um, one of the things that he did to make this work better, there had been some you know, world hunger organization projects and stuff like that. And the people basically, it was too complicated and it didn't work right and it cost too much. So eventually the people of the region destroyed these big money projects because they were, the, the projects themselves were destroying the lives of the people. So the people rebelled against it by destroying it. But they had one thing they had done with these projects that was simple, low tech, and inexpensive that he looked at and said, maybe I can do this. And this is create low rock walls on contour. What is, what do we, when we hear the word on contour and we're thinking permaculture, what do we think? Swales. So swale, for those of you who haven't heard episodes where I've talked about them before, <clears throat> a swale is a ditch. But unlike most ditches, a ditch is usually designed to do what? It's on a pitch. 
So the water goes in the ditch, and then the ditch moves the water away. A swale is put on dead level contour. So you get out you know, from anything from a simple to complex apparatus, and you determine where is the contour line on the land. So if you think of a contour map, and you look on a contour map, the lines are never straight. They're always curved. So then we, we go in and we do modern agriculture, we put things in a straight line, and we wonder why we have soil erosion. So with, with permaculture, we look and we find that contour line. We say, if it's 800 feet elevation here, uh, one foot away, where's the 800 feet elevation? We put a mark. And then we go another foot and we say, where is it there? And we've got, you know, another foot, we've got a yard of, of straight line or, you know, of contour line. Then we start going, okay, one yard from there, and we use equipment and maybe a yard at a time, or if we have more sophisticated equipment, we move a little faster than that, and we, we mark a line in, in the ground, and we dig a ditch. And that ditch is dead level with a sill at the end, so when it, if it does fill past capacity, the water goes off the end and very gently goes down to the next swale or into the system, and this hydrates the soil. Well, digging a swale ditch would probably work over there, but they didn't know to do that. But they did something so much simpler and so much faster. There's rock. It's a desert. There's, there's dirt. And there's rocks. Those are two things you have in abundance. So when I say a low rock wall, I'm talking like one rock high. I'm talking like six to eight inch rock. Okay? And they mark the contour line, and they just line the rocks up one after the other, like a little dam you would build when you were a kid. Remember, you'd sit in a ditch, and the water's running, and you're going to build a dam, and you start piling rocks up, and the water could get around the rocks, and it would hold some of it back, and then you'd play with the little thing you made. Maybe you never did that. I used to do my, me and my friends used to do that all the time when it would rain. After the rain, we'd go build these little dams, and we'd think we're going to keep fishing them, whatever. And they, you know, they never lasted. They slowed the water down. So these are not built like a dam. There's, you can actually see the spaces between them, but it slows the water, which gives it more time to get into the soil and more time to get into the zeis. So we get more water retention. Because these guys don't water, folks. They don't water. They don't go out to their fields with a bucket and dump water in all these holes. They plant it, and they let it go from there on its own. So they have to get every bit of the sporadic rainfall they can maximized. So low walls on contour. Uh, and then the next thing is... He didn't just grow, and this is another permaculture principle. You know, most of what they were growing was like sorghum and millet. Those are the two things they seem to grow the most. I didn't see a pepper. I didn't see a tomato. I didn't see anything that you generally are going to find. This was grain, the bread of life, to feed these people so they didn't starve to death. That's how basic this is. But he grew trees because trees help create rainfall. Trees create condensation drip. Trees slow down the wind and create windbreaks so that we don't dry the soil with the wind because that was one of his other points, that it was dried out by the wind. And then they never explain this, and I can't find anything online about this, and if you can, let me know exactly how he does this, but he uses termites because the termites over there dig all these tunnels and everything, so somehow, I don't know if he digs open, it, they just didn't say, but... He maybe he just when they because they show up everywhere there maybe when they show up he just doesn't get rid of them right but one way or another he's using termites because they turn the soil and they break down organic matter and they create all these pathways and then when you know, I guess maybe when they abandon their, their their mounds or whatever the water is able to permeate further into the soil so I don't know exactly how but the guy's utilizing termites but that's basically it he digs holes throws shit in it and he feeds people. And he's transforming the entire landscape with that simple principle. That's a small, slow, simple solution. That's permaculture in action. Now, as I watched it, I did think of some ways this could be in, in, improved. I think, and I, I don't think this works for them there, 
But I think if you're going to make this work for people elsewhere, we got to figure out a way to kind of automate it. And I think we could create equipment that would do this. Um, I think that you could actually – I remember this thing I talked about with Paul Wheaton. I've talked about it on other shows. There was a series by Bill Mollison called The Global Gardener. He goes all over the world and shows you what students are doing, uh, urban environments, rural environments, warm environments, cold environments. And he goes to the desert of the United States, desert southwest of the United States. And this guy is terraforming the desert out there. And he built this thing that kind of looks like a steamroller, right? It kind of looks like a, a roller for rolling out when you put blacktop down. Uh, but the wheel part has these triangular points, and all it does is make dimples in the soil. So he drives this thing around, and it makes dimples, and that's it. He doesn't throw anything in there. He doesn't water it. All he does is drive around the desert making dimples. And, you know, a year or two after he does this, the areas he's done it to, they're green, while everything around them is still desert. And, well, how's it work? The little dimple sits there, the wind blows through the desert, and little pieces of organic matter get caught in the bottom of that dimple. Well, then it rains, and it kind of backfills in a little bit, and it creates a little pocket. That little pocket has little seeds in it from, you know, rat turds or whatever, uh, little pack rat turds that are eating seeds, and the seeds are blowing around and all, and it starts to form. And then once the roots get in there, and they start to create pathways with the root system into the soil and the rock, um, the water, when it does rain, can get in, and it creates these little patches. So he's basically re, re, re he's, this guy, instead of reforesting the desert, he's bringing back the prairie, the desert prairie, by driving a little thing around. Well, I think that it wouldn't be that hard to develop equipment that would create holes about the size of these eye holes and even maybe automate the addition of organic matter. And, I mean, this seems to me like it could be really, really effective. If you look at it, in some ways what it is is hugel culture light. Instead of one really deep pit with a whole bunch of organic matter, it's tons and tons of little pits with lots of organic matter. Um, so I think that there's, there's something there with automation. Um, I also would like to see more polyculture. I, I like that he was growing the forest, but and maybe they just didn't show it because I mean they didn't even show me a diagram or you know number counts or how this. So God knows what they didn't show because it was more about the story of the man and his life than the technique itself uh, and the results rather than the technique. But I'd like to see more stuff and maybe you know I don't know maybe you can't grow a lot more stuff there. Maybe they're growing what grows there because that's that's what will work and feed them. But it would be interesting to see more diversity of crops. Now, he's got lots of varieties. There's a scene where a guy shows up and he says he's looking for some seed. He wants some sorghum seed. And he's basically, do you want do you want quality or do you want quantity? And he said he was looking for quality. And that was about, you know, bigger seed and higher yields and things like that instead of the speed of growth. And he basically said, when anybody comes to me, into my seed house, and they can they can tell me what they're looking for, whether they want quality porridge or whether they want you know more tolerant or whatever it is. I have seed for them, and, and so there is some of this diversity going on there with seed strains and all. But I didn't see a lot of polyculture. And I think in a place less harsh, it would be even easier and more more practical to bring more polyculture in. I, I also wonder about increasing the depth of the size. The best I can see, these things are about a foot deep. Now, I know he made them bigger and deeper, but I don't know what that means because they didn't tell me. But if you built equipment to do this, if you could automate this, or if you were doing it yourself in, on a smaller scale and you just went out and dug 10 holes a day, if you went and dug a two-foot hole, uh, you're going to have a greater result. And I guess it depends on the soil types and things like that. But that might work. The big one, and I absolutely know this would work, 
would be to use mulch. I saw no mulch in this entire... Now, in the forest, you've got natural mulches from the stuff falling from the trees. But when they're done harvesting the fields, there's nothing left. So I, I think that mulching... And I think it's because they have to use everything they grow. They use the, 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 the straw for probably fuel. They use it for building huts. They, you know, they use the grain. So, But I'd like to... And they are putting organic matter back. But I think if they were using mulch as well that they would get better results. So uh, anything they can do to do that, if maybe they start doing some polyculture and start growing things in between the sorghum that are really just for soil amendments, uh, can be chopped and dropped, even season-long annuals and things like that, um, there's, there's a tremendous opportunity for an even greater improvement there from what I can see. But, hey, this guy's doing it in the middle of the desert. He seems to know what he's doing. There might be a reason. Maybe everything they can use for mulch, because they only have so many resources right now, has to go to making compost, mixing it with manure so that they can actually fill the eyes. So maybe it's not that they don't know or don't want to. Maybe they don't have enough stuff. But if you were to do something like this on land in America, we have so much less vegetation in much of our nation, it would be really easy. And maybe they just never thought about growing mulch. And maybe it's because they have to use every foot they can to grow food so they don't starve. But if you can make it work, I think that would be a big improvement. Then the next one, and this is one I'm, I, I know would work as well, instead of just using the low rock walls, incorporate true swales so that the water is not just slowed down but actually stopped and permeates into the desire fields. So those are my ideas for improving it. And, you know, the reality is these guys are doing it on the ground, feed themselves with it, so they're doing it right, so I'm not putting it down. But I think that some of my solutions probably are practical and some of them may be impractical. I won't know until I play around with this maybe on a small scale um, but it is a very interesting concept, and I wanted to bring it to you. But the bigger thing I want to bring to you is some of the wisdom that I got from Yakuba about survival. And I want you to think about this one. I'm, you know, I, I didn't sit down and watch the entire documentary a second time. I watched it about 11 o'clock uh, on my laptop sitting in bed. By the way, if you buy the DVD, um, I bought the, the correct regional DVD for, for North America, and I put it in my DVD player in my TV set, and those guys over there in London must not know what they're doing, 1080 films, because my disc didn't work in my DVD player. When I threw it in my computer, it worked just fine. Um, but uh, I, I wish these people uh, doing these types of documentaries would just start burning their DVDs region-free. Because uh, apparently, and this is not the first time I've bought several DVDs from the Permaculture Institute of Australia, where I've bought the you know North American regional stuff, and it didn't work. And you get two discs, and one worked and one didn't. So I know it's not like they got it completely backwards. So uh, that's just a caveat, and I, I, I'm not upset. I don't want my money back from them or anything like that. I'm happy to support their work, but it didn't work. But as I was sitting there in bed with this thing laying on my, on my stomach, watching this DVD with my earphones in so I wasn't disturbing my wife, who was already out for the night, um, I was listening to him speak in his native language and reading the subtitles. And the one that struck me more than anything else as a survival topic is he said, nothing makes people nasty faster than insecurity. So as soon as their life is not secure, they turn nasty. Now you think about that. All of the concerns we have with civil unrest, all of the concerns we have with societal breakdown, what really causes it? In the survival world, much of our bias tells us that the reason society breaks down is because there's people out there that the moment they have the opportunity to get away with committing crimes will. 
And there is a small segment of that. But that small segment generally is out there committing crimes anyway. They're just being a little smarter about how they go about doing it. Fortunately for us, most of them are pretty stupid and get caught sooner or later. But the majority of people, if they walked by a store and they looked at a window and they realized it was unlatched and they realized they could go in there and steal stuff and they looked around and there was nobody around and they really thought they were going to get away with it, the majority of people still aren't going to do it. So it's not just the law enforcement that, that causes the breakdown. It's insecurity. When people aren't sure if they're going to eat, when they're not sure if their kids are going to eat, when they're not sure of their futures, when they begin to lose hope, they'll do whatever it takes to get by till tomorrow. And it was the exact word he said, nothing makes people nasty faster than insecurity. And I, I, when I heard that, I thought, man, this guy has lived with the type of society that we fear. And he stood right in the middle of it and helped to make a difference. There's a message for us there as well. Uh, but there's also a negative message there. We need to understand that. If we don't make sure that we start taking actions that are sustainable to feed people in this country, we leave ourselves open to a lot of things. Um, how about you know uh, the, the real revolution that we don't want? And how about it all happens in the ballot box? How, how about we go to true full socialism one day? Because enough people are hungry to demand it. No bloodshed, no nothing, just enough hungry people. Because I'll tell you what, welfare is not sustainable. Food stamps, not sustainable. Medicare, Medicaid, not sustainable. Social Security, not sustainable. We have to come up with sustainable ways to feed people. That's why it was great having, um, uh, what's her name from the dinner garden yesterday uh, on the show? Uh, I'll just slip for a second. Holly Hirschberg. She wants to plant one garden for every six American families. And see the, the, the similarities there. Here we have this lady down from South Texas who, who's a typical uh, suburban mom who had some hard times with her family, uh, but you know lives in a nation where you can, you can have hard times and really kind of be okay for now, who puts together a program to feed people. And then we have a guy that, that lives in a place where if you don't feed yourself, you're going to starve, and he does the same thing. They take different methodologies, but the results are the same. And that's because I think inherently we know that. It's not just about feeding people because it's the right thing to do or uh, a good thing to do or a noble thing to do. It's because there is a certain amount of self-preservation in ensuring that people can actually feed themselves. And there's self-preservation of physical safety, but there's also a preservation of our way of life. And that kind of leads me to his next like pearl of wisdom. And I need to write, watch this again with a pen and paper and write down some quotes from this guy and, and publish like a list of 20 Yakuba quotes because this man is... I don't care you can't read or write. This man is a genius. He said you can't preserve your wealth by running away. Think about that. You cannot preserve your wealth by running away. And I guess he means because you're going to leave behind the thing that is your real wealth, and that's your land, your ability to feed yourself. See, all of these people had lands that they were farming, but when they couldn't get a yield anymore, they ran away. And the societies began to crumble, and everybody went from being in the, in the country to being in the city where they had civil unrest, because if you can't just run to the city and think everything's going to be okay. Because if the people are coming from the farms, and unlike America where when that happened, we just bought bigger tractors and, and, and throw GMO crops and fertilizer on and got more food, right? You know, we, they couldn't do that there. So for every person that left farming to come to the city, there was one less producer and another consumer. And there was nothing to offset it. So they ran away, but any of the wealth that they had, they eventually lost. 
I want to ask you to think about that. I want to ask you to think about the, the, just the statement itself. You can't preserve your wealth by running away. And realize that this 57-year-old man over in the Sahal of Africa who can't read or write is the one that told you that, not me. The next one is, and it was right toward the beginning, we have to solve the food problem before anything else. We have to solve the food problem first. That no matter what you want in a society, if people aren't fed, you're not going to get there. And I'll leave that one speak for itself. The next one was, if you cut down 10 trees a day and plant none in a year, you're doomed. And that's the way we've been living, not just in the Sahel of Africa, but throughout most of the world. For every 10 trees we cut, we are not planting it even one in a year. And that is, that is deforesting the planet. That is all these things that the global warming, greeny nut job people that are so, so convinced it's real don't understand. You know, a carbon tax isn't going to fix the freaking problem. Planting trees fixes the problem. At least it starts to fix the problem. But it's so much bigger than global warming, right? It's, it's, it's rain. Forests create rain. I know it's hard for you to understand that because they don't teach you that in school. They teach you the sun evaporates the water and there's the water cycle. And they're not wrong. But that tree is such a component of that a tree is a giant hydraulic pump. Think about this. A 250-foot tall tree might have roots that go... 20 feet down into the soil. So it's 270 feet from the tip of the root to the top of the canopy. And it pumps the water all the way up to the top of the canopy. And it keeps growing. And we get transpiration off the forest. That means the tree pulls up a certain amount of water and some of it's released. And then we get condensation off the trees. So the trees are part of the water cycle and we're leaving them out. It's not just the soil retention. It's not just the conversion of CO2 to oxygen. It's not just the carbon trap or carbon cycle. I don't deny the carbon cycle, folks. I know it's real and it's important. All of these things are there. Well, you, you can't have the world become something that will feed everybody without forests. And the desert grows as the forest shrinks. So if you cut down 10 trees a day and plant none in a year, you're doomed. Uh, the next one is, and he didn't say this, but it's really what I took out of it from watching the story of his life. Leaders are shaped by circumstance and choice. When he was a young man in his Quranic school and, and he was about to leave, the, the head guy, like the, 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 the sheikh, said, bring Yakuba to me before he leaves. And he brought him to him in the night by a fire alone, quiet, to speak to him. And I got the impression that, you know, he had this teacher that was below the sheikh, and you, students didn't usually talk to the sheikh, that type of thing. So it was like a big deal to be there talking to the sheikh. And the sheikh told him that he didn't need to worry about the fact that he wasn't able to learn, that he would go home and he would become a leader of men. And, of course, Yakuba told him, not me, my family's nothing, I'm nothing, I can't even learn this. I've been here 10 years, and I can't learn what everybody around me has learned. And the sheikh told him, you don't have to worry about that. This is what's going to happen for you. Just go live your life and basically figure it out. But in there, not just kind of the circumstances, there was also the choice. So when he was doing very well as a business person and had more money than any time, it would have been easy to just keep saving money and use that to help his family and try to become a business person in his community. 
but he knew that it wasn't sustainable, and it wasn't. The, the markets ended up getting busted up by the military over discrepancies and things like that and basic thuggery. So if he would have stayed there, it wouldn't have worked out. And all of these people that are, are eating today would still be having to run away or starve if he hadn't done what he did. So leaders are shaped by circumstance and choice. And I think that one of the big things that's missing in America today are the leaders. Where, you know, in words of Leah Iacocca, where have all the leaders gone? But I don't necessarily mean leaders as heads of state or heads of major corporations. I mean leaders in our own lives. Everybody wants somebody to do something for them instead of shutting up and doing it for themselves. You know, every, every time there's a problem, well, somebody should fix it. Well, how about you? And maybe you're not going to feed the entire Sahel, and I'm not either. But we need to once again in this nation start standing up and leading. Even if we're a small family, a mom, dad, and one kid, dad, stand up and lead your family. Mom, stand up and lead your family. And teach that young person to lead as well. We need to start seeing leadership as a true noble value again. And start realizing that leadership is not about who says what about you. It's about the circumstances you're handed in life. And the choices you take when they come to you. And then the last thing that I learned watching this documentary is a new word for me. And I, I use both words a lot. One's food and the other one's sovereignty. But food sovereignty is a new phrase for me. And food sovereignty saves societies. The societies where people were running away now, people are coming back to. And I was listening to one young man, and he was not, not Yakuba, this young man who's one of Yakuba's students. He runs a bar. He runs a, a bar in, in town, and he has his fields, and he does both. Because the, the, the genius of this dig a hole, put shit in it, and plant stuff is that during the whole growth period, you don't do a whole lot. I mean, that's, it, there's all this time to actually just like dig your holes, take care of it, you know, get it ready to go, plant it, and harvest it. So, There's not a lot of work in between. So these people are able to do other things. This is just a component of their lifestyle, much like you having a home garden when you come from work, that type of thing. In fact, they have, but they have less work they do for their garden, and it's much bigger and produces much more. But he was talking about how he didn't want to leave the town because he didn't want to leave the elders. And I, when I first heard him say that, and you know, he wasn't he was the subtitles because he's speaking whatever language they speak in Burkina Faso. And uh, when I first read that, I thought, oh, he means like some kind of, uh, uh, you know, allegiance or authority or something like that. But as he kept talking, he said, because they need us to help them. As they get older, they're not going to be able to do things, and they need young people to step up and help do what they can't do anymore. And because we have food sovereignty now, because we have that, I can stay here, and I can run my bar, and I can make a little bit more money and take care of my family, and I can, I can help my community. And boy, that'll hit you. If you really think about what that means, and this is why we've been able to get away with stupidity in our country, because there's so much food here, and there's so much subsidy, and there's so much, you know, basically robbing of one person to feed another, and there's so much abundance in this country that we've become spoiled upon it. But we're not food sovereign anymore ourselves. We're really not. You know, we've crossed over several times back and forth to becoming net importers of food. We're destroying our aquifers. We're destroying our soil. We're looking to science to fix the problem instead of nature to fix the problem. 
And we in this nation, as our population continues to grow, we're putting our, our food sovereignty at risk. Not just our national sovereignty. And let me ask you this. How long can a nation or a city or a state or a household remain sovereign in its manner if it's not sovereign in its ability to feed itself? I, I can't believe how much this merges with some of the things that I've been talking about lately. With the end of Friday's show where I was talking about your responsibility to have some level of control over how you're fed. And then I watched this video a few days later. I mean, this is exactly what I was trying to say. But told by a, a, the story told by a man that lives thousands of miles away in a totally different situation with a totally different set of needs. But folks, we have to be able to feed ourselves. I know I've said that to you before, but I hope you'll take a new look at it today. And I want you to start thinking about that word, food sovereignty. And I want you to start asking yourself, how sovereign are you? individually with your food? How sovereign is your town, your city, your county, your state, and your nation? And is it important? I think it's important, but do you think it's important? Is it important to you to have food sovereignty? Does it sound like something maybe we should have been paying attention to even though we haven't been? Uh, I do. And I, I can't recommend this highly enough that maybe you consider adding this DVD to your collection. Um, it's not a how-to DVD. And I didn't expect it to be. I did expect more of the mechanics to be explained. And I'm going to get in touch with 1080 Films. I'm going to let them know about this episode. And I'm going to ask them if they can provide more information on the mechanics so that these techniques can be spread to other parts of the world so that they can be improved and adapted. Because I don't think you're going to use these things exactly the same way in, in different areas. But some places are just like the Sahal. This might be able to repair lands in the desert southwest of the United States. It might be able to repair lands in the deserts of Australia that have lost their prairie-like nature. It doesn't always have to be to grow crops. It could be used just to, to restore what was there before we screwed it up. And I, 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 but I, but I, I do want to recommend you consider getting the DVD. Again, I'm going to remind you. Hey, when I got mine, it didn't work in my DVD player. So you might be stuck watching it on your uh, computer. It would be cool if they would sell it by download. That, that would be awesome as well, but they don't right now. Um, but it was, it was a reasonable cost. I'll put a link uh, to 1080 Films where you can get the DVD today. Uh, it was over in London. I bought it last week. It was here yesterday morning. So it was relatively fast shipping. I think the shipping on it was like 10 bucks or something like that. And shipping from London, and that's where you have to buy it from right now. That's not, you know, out of, out of the question or anything like that. It, it, it comes out to be like 30 bucks or something like that because of the exchange rate, because it's in Great Britain pounds and the dollars we against pound. But I think it's a good investment. And I think it's something that I'll watch a hell of a lot more than once. And even though I've told you the story, You didn't really get to experience it. So consider this and consider watching it with your children. Consider setting up community viewings of this. Remember I had Marjorie on from Backyard Food Production, and she said, you know, one way to find people that think alike is to set up community events and have people come out to watch a, a free video. And then you don't have to have a great presenter or anything like that. I don't think this would be a good first one, but I think if you started to establish a group like that around gardening and permaculture and things like that uh, and preparedness, it would be a good one to eventually work in. Um, because I, I think you'll have to have a certain level of knowledge of the problem to understand how remarkable this simple solution really is. 
Um, this is absolutely phenomenal. And again, I now have a new name on my list of you know kind of who's who in transforming the world through agriculture. And that new name is Yakuba Sawadogo. Um, just a phenomenal man and a phenomenal story. With that, I will wrap up today. And I mean, if you have nothing else that you think you can do with your land, try digging some holes. Uh, that's what this man did. And by digging holes, he turned a desert into a forest. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you.